0: Now, on the second Sunday of Easter, we're jumping into this spiritual practice of repentance and confession. We're taking a break from the book of James today. We'll be back in James next Sunday, Uh, but we are talking about our spiritual practice for the month today, and that spiritual practice is repentance and confession, and it's so timely to highlight this post-resurrection fact, the resurrection of Jesus ought to lead us into a life of continual repentance and confession. Now, we're going to discover this morning that repentance and confession is so much deeper and so much more life-giving than you may be familiar with. A lot of times when we hear the word repentance and confession, repentance, sometimes we think about the street preacher yelling repent or perish, right, with the signs and the, and the bullhorn just kind of standing there yelling, repent, repent, repent. In the Christian world, oftentimes repentance is this negative thing that's thrown upon you and, and it piles up guilt and shame. And then confession, many people, their experience of confession or their, their context for confession is like a confessional booth in like a Catholic church. We have many Catholics, many ex-Catholics, people in our church who grew up Catholic and they're their idea of confession is going into a booth and telling the priest your sins and then getting some kind of, like, say so many Hail Marys to work that off. Uh, my own experience with confession is not great. I went on a youth retreat as a high schooler, and um, I, it was this, uh, it was a very interesting retreat. And I remember feeling convicted of some sin in my life, and I told one of the leaders about this sin, and he said, oh, don't worry about it, it's not that big of a deal. And so that was one of my first experiences of confession. I thought, no, it feels like a big deal. It feels to me like God is convicting me of this sin, and so I'm going to forget confessing my sins. And then others, they have this experience where you confess something in a small group or with a trusted person, and then they tell it to another person, and then all of a sudden there's gossip around the church or around your friend group. And what I want you to know today as we dive into this topic, that repentance and confession is far more than that. My prayer for us this month is that as we experience repentance and confession, we experience in a new depth and meaning the love of the Father. I want to try it out this morning. So turn to the person next to you and tell them your deepest, darkest sins. Ready? Go. No, okay, you don't have to do that. That's, that's not where we're going this morning. Don't worry, you're not going to be put on the spot to tell anyone your de- deepest and darkest sins. We're going to look at a ton of scripture this morning, so get a Bible open on your lap, whether that's on your device, turn it on, or if you have a paper Bible, open that up, or if you don't have either, open up a Bible. In the, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, grab that and open it up. We're going to fly through a ton of scripture today and get this idea of what repentance and confession is. But before we get into the scripture, let me just give you a quick description, a quick definition of what repentance and confession is. Repentance means to change your mind or your purpose. It means turning from what is wrong and turning to what is right. It's a, it's a 180. It means if you're going in this direction, you realize this direction isn't helpful for me. This direction isn't good. This direction is leading me nowhere. I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn Turn my mind. I'm going to change my beliefs. I'm going to change my activity, my behavior, and I'm going to go in this direction. And confession is to agree or to align with someone else or something else. It's to come to the same conclusion and to be of the same mind. They're very similar and we'll see throughout scripture how they're similar. And I want you to know, especially those of us who grew up in maybe kind of a classical evangelical type of circle or or maybe a mainline mainline denomination, repentance oftentimes is preached and taught from the negative form. Stop doing what's bad. Stop doing what's bad, right? You're going in a wrong direction. You're going in a negative direction. You are a sinner by nature and choice. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. Stop it. That is a part of confession and repentance. It's to acknowledge, I'm broken. I'm, I'm sinning. I am doing bad things and thinking bad thoughts. Yes, that's true. But also, it's true, just as true that it is to turn to something that is good and is Right? And so I want to make sure that we don't overemphasize the negative to the positive. There's both a negative and a positive side to repentance and confession. It's acknowledging what's broken and wrong, but it's turning to and running towards and grabbing onto what is good and right. And I think in many of our church experience, the the negative has been overemphasized. And turning to the positive, that there's life, that there's joy, that there's forgiveness, that there's peace, that there is a new creation. Turn to it, run to it, embrace it, has been underemphasized. And so this month, I want you and your community groups and in your personal devotion to really give some thought to what does it mean to turn to what is right, turn to what is good, turn to what is lovely and life-giving. See, it's my belief that repentance and confession is an is a under-practiced spiritual discipline. And one of the most important spiritual disciplines for you and I to feel the new life, to experience the new life, to find confidence in the new life that Jesus has given us. Some of you are perpetually wrestling with sin patterns and feeling the, the shame of that. Some of you are just broken and lonely. Maybe you're widowed or maybe you're single and you just feel lost and alone. Some of you have struggling marriages. Some of you are wrestling with addictions. Some of you are struggling to find jobs. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, my belief is that learning the spiritual practice of repentance and confession will help you to it's not going to be a quick fix out of that state of loneliness or depression or brokenness, but it's going to help you acknowledge that and move into a standing in the presence of God where you know that you are loved, where you are accepted, you have nothing to lose, you have nothing to prove, and repentance and confession is the path to get there. And so this morning, we're just going to look at a ton of Scripture, um, and we're going to let the Scripture kind of speak to us about what repentance is. See, here, here's the list. This is just on repentance, right? And I cut Scripture out because people tell you that you're not supposed to preach like 20 different passages on a Sunday morning. We're going to do it this morning. Let's start where Jesus starts. And before I, before I do, before we get into Matthew, let me pray one more time. Jesus, we thank you for overcoming sin and death in the grave. Lord, I thank you that we can be a people who embrace repentance and confession not out of fear from being judged by a holy God, but out of joy knowing that we've been forgiven and embraced by a loving Father. So help us to see your word this morning more clearly and to practice the disciplines that you have for our growth. Lord, help us to walk in the ways of Jesus. For our own own good, for your glory and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting with Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, let's start where Jesus starts with repentance. Now, there's a ton in the Old Testament about repentance and confession, a ton of corporate calls to repent and confess, and individual repentance and confession. But since we're the Sunday post-Easter here, the Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, I want to just focus in on the New Testament and see what Jesus and then the New Church has to say about repentance and confession. So, starting in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, From this time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very first message, the very first proclamation, and preaching, and teaching, and instruction that Jesus gives to his followers is to repent to turn, to turn from a worldly way of doing things, to turn from your own way of doing things, to change your mind about how life works best and how life ought to be ordered, and turn, repent, turn from that, repent, and turn to me for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a new day. There's a new birth. There's a new kingdom, this underground kingdom full of life and love and new power. Come and follow me. And then watch how he calls one of the first disciples to follow him. Verse 18. Well, walking by the Sea of Galilee, if you remember last week, I mentioned Galilee, the significance of Galilee. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, there's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 fulfilled about Jesus coming to Galilee, this common place with common people, calling them to give up their common life and to follow him in an uncommon, supernatural, powerful, power filled life. And so while Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat, And their father and they followed him. See, Jesus comes preaching, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we see what repentance is from the first disciples. From Jesus' very first apprentices. It's it's to to leave what they were doing, to reorient their life, to change the purpose of their life, to follow Jesus, to make fishers of men. Now you know, after the after the resurrection, they went back to fishing. And throughout their ministries, there were moments where they got out on the boat and they fished and they helped with the family business. So it doesn't mean for all of us the call to follow Jesus, this call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't mean that all of us quit our jobs, all of us become pastors or missionaries, or all of us sell all of our things and live a life of poverty. It looks different for each and every follower of Jesus. But you see the, the response there as Jesus preaches, repent, Turn and follow me. It's this change of purpose. No longer Peter, Andrew, James, and John is your life about making money, about accumulating wealth, about inheriting the family business. No longer is your life defined by the daily needs. Yes, there are daily needs. But your life is marked by living for me. Repent. And come after me. Follow me. And you see their their immediate reaction. Leave everything and follow him. Martin Luther, when he posted the 95 theses to the the Wittenberg Chapel, his very first one, number one of 95, is this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. He didn't mean one of continual repentance oh, I am so bad, I am so bad, I am so bad. There's part of that. But, but he means, as he reads these passages and thinks about well, what did Jesus do? He called people to come and follow him, to repent. It means the entire Christian life is one of continually being reminded that we have a greater purpose, a higher purpose, a higher person to live for than ourselves, and continually laying down our own agenda, our own desires, our own wills, and saying, God, what you will, I live for you, not for me. Our entire life is wrapped up into that. Nextly, let's flip over to Luke chapter 24, and this is on page 885 in the Pew Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I have the pages there for you so you can find these passages nice and easily without having to flip around. Luke chapter 24. Now, many of us are familiar with the Great Commission at the end of Matthew where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A great passage. Our our church mission statement to be and make disciples is based off of that passage in Matthew. But I love Luke's Great Commission here. Luke includes a little nuance that Matthew doesn't. Luke 24, verse 44 through 49. Luke records the words of Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The entire left side of the book is pointing to this Messiah, to this Jesus of Nazareth who overcame sin and death in the grave. Everything you read culminates in Jesus. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem... You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see how this passage includes repentance and forgiveness of sins. That the forgiveness of sins is tied to repentance, it's tied to turning from living for myself to now I am living for God. I am repenting, I am turning, and in that there is forgiveness. The perfect life of Jesus. The sacrificial death of Jesus, the victorious resurrection of Jesus, allows me to be forgiven, but I have to repent. I have to turn to that. I have to confess that I believe in who he is and what he's done, and I have to turn to following him, surrendering my life to him. And then verse 49, Jesus tells them to, to wait in Jerusalem for the power, the Holy Spirit, the power from on high to come down and empower them for ministry. Now that's going to lead us into the book of Acts, where we get a beautiful picture of repentance post resurrection. So flip over to Acts. In Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the believers, fills the disciples with the power of God. Romans tells us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within the followers of Jesus. That's amazing and a beautiful picture. And as they're filled with this power, miraculous things are happening in their community and as their community is an example to the non-believing world. One of the things that happens here in Acts chapter 2 is Peter stands up and he gives this incredible sermon about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's in Jerusalem giving this sermon. There's Jews and Gentiles listening to this sermon. It's all about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, when they heard that Jesus was the Messiah and he was unjustly crucified, unjustly killed, and he overcame sin and death in the grave, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you ever felt cut to the heart in a sermon or during a song or, or reading a, 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 a blog or listening to a podcast or having a conversation with somebody or reading scripture and all of a sudden you feel cut to the heart, that's the work of the Holy Spirit convicting you in love. They feel cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's a great response. Once you start to feel the conviction of sin or the the call to repent, that something in me is broken, something is wrong, something is off, I need to fix this thing. What should I do? They ask Peter and the apostles who respond, repent, turn. Turn from how you were doing life and turn to how you ought to do life and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for those who are far off, even those who 2,000 years later are on a different continent. Amen? You and I are the fulfillment of this promise, of this proclamation that happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Isn't that incredible, church family? Don't lose sight of that. 2,000 years ago, Peter stood up and he proclaimed this gospel and he says that this promised Holy Spirit, this new life, this call to repent and be baptized is for you, you Jews and, and, and Gentiles in Jerusalem and for those who are far off, those who will come after you. And here we are today. Amen and amen. Let me, let me back up. I was going to add this in to the, to the Luke 24 passage, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during the Second World War and he was, he was killed for fighting back against the injustice and the oppression that was happening to the Jews. And he wrote from prison and he said, the cross is laid on every Christian. Remember when Jesus says, repent and be baptized. When when Peter here says repent and be baptized, turn your way of life, change your pursuits, give up your worldly pursuits and take on a godly pursuit, Bonhoeffer says the cross is laid upon every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old self which is the result of our encounter with Christ. Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Don't fear death. Don't fear physical death. But also don't fear the small little daily deaths that you will die to self. Oh, I I give up my will. I give up my agenda. I give up my money. I give up my perspective. I give up my opinion. I give up wanting my way. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give ourselves to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them to come and die. Repent turn to give up your purpose, your agenda, your will, embrace God's purpose, God's agenda, God's will, and in that you will experience life. And so Peter, Jesus calls us to repent. Now we see Peter calling us to repent. Look at, stay in Acts, look at Acts chapter 3, verse 13 through 20. And again, Peter's preaching. He's doing a public address. He says, and now, brothers I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. Turn. Repent. And turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? That's what repentance does. It brings times of refreshing. Turn from the things that cause you toil, from the things that grow anxiety in you from the things that you want to control and turn to God and give up control and experience his refreshing, experience his new life. This invitation from Peter is to turn from something and turn to something. Turn from a way of life that burdens you with shame and guilt and inability and turn turn to a way of life where there's forgiveness that is full of refreshment. Acts 11, 18, once again, Peter preaching. See, one, one last example of Peter calling us to repent. Now, in this context here in Acts chapter 11, there's, there's, a, there's a debate going on about how the Jews think that the Gentiles need to become more Jewish or the Jews are questioning whether or not the Gentiles can really become the people of God. And so Peter is giving this, this he's explaining to the Jewish leaders how Gentiles are becoming followers of Yahweh, how they become followers of Jesus, the way. And I love what he says here in verse, in chapter 11. Let me start in verse 17. Then if God gave the same spirit to them, being Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed, this is like the religious people who grew up in the church. They have all their doctrines figured out and now these people who know nothing are coming into the church but they're, they're excited about Jesus. And the religious people are like, can we really trust their salvation? Because they don't look Christian yet. They're wearing hats to church. They, they, don't, they don't look like us. Their, their speech isn't cleaned up. Maybe they're still dropping F-bombs in the church lobby. Can we, can we really trust that the Spirit of God is, is at work here? They need to clean themselves up. They need to look more like us. They need to become aware of the church customs and cultures. we got to teach them how to flip around in the hymnal. We have to teach them how to sing these songs. They, they, they don't know these things, and so I'm not sure if we can really trust. They, they sit on the pews. Well, you're supposed to sit on the pew, right? They sit on the back of the pew. They, like, lean against it. They, they don't respect their building. They don't respect their traditions. Can we really trust What's happening here? And Peter says, he's communicating to these religious leaders, this religious system, this religious tradition, that if when God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. A change of way, a change of perspective, a change of understanding Turn from their way of life, turn to God. Not to a religious way of life, not to following the religious traditions and customs, but to a man, to a person who gives life. Amen? Amen? is what Peter is preaching. And now Paul, now Paul comes along preaching the same thing. Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, here he is, he is in Athens speaking to a bunch of pagans who are worshiping false god, worshiping false idols. He had just said, there's an there's a idol in your city marked to an unknown god. Let me tell you who he is. And so he's proclaiming the gospel to them and, and he says in verse 29 being then God's offspring. That's all of us, all of mankind. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's not like your man-made idols. Thus, the times of ignorance God overlooked. How incredibly gracious of God. I'll overlook your your ignorant attempts to connect with the supernatural unseen world and to connect with, with God. Overlooked. Now the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn, to change. Acts chapter 20, verse 20 and 21. Now Paul is in Ephesus speaking to the leaders in the church in Ephesus. And he's saying, you remember, I'll pick it up in the middle of verse 18, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance. I love this language here. Of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, repentance isn't just feeling guilty for what is wrong and what you've done. It's turning to something good. Repentance towards God. Turn towards something that is life-giving. Turn towards the Father who is full of love and forgiveness. Acts 26, one more from Paul. Acts 26, 19 and 20. Therefore, O King Agrippa, these are all public conversations that the early church is having with, in mixed company, believers and non-believers, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. See again, repent is is turning to God. It's turning to what is right and true and lovely. And then there's a way of living that shows that you are a person who has or are continually repenting. As we've been studying the book of James, we see so often that James says faith without works is dead. He can't separate the two. If you have repented, if you have changed your purpose, if you have changed your way of living and turned to God to receive his life, to receive his joy, to receive his power, there is deeds that show this repentance is genuine. And so church family, do you see how the early church believed and taught that one of the first steps to take in responding to the resurrection of Jesus is to repent, to turn to God, to turn to God, to turn to God. And next, confession is similar. Confession means to align with or to come to the same conclusion and to be of the same mind. Look at Matthew chapter 16 for the first example of this confession in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 16. Now, the word confession actually isn't used here in this passage. It's in the English heading. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but we see a confession, a profession of faith. This is key to followers of Jesus. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and other Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's the confession to agree with. Who is this Christ? Who is Jesus? Well, he is the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the church is built. And again, here we sit 2,000 years later as a church built upon Jesus Christ, upon this confession. Flip to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you agree with who he is, his nature, his personhood, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is Saved. See, this, this confession piece is essential to our, to our entrance from death into life, from our entrance into being a non-follower of Jesus to being a follower of Jesus. But it's something that must continually happen. Confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what we do every Sunday when we gather through our songs, through our preaching, through our communion. That's what you do in small groups. That's what you do, hopefully, with one another in your daily life. Jesus is Lord. You're not You don't need to be. Take that pressure off yourself. Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? What a great question to start with. Or why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, this is a a prophecy from Isaiah that Paul is pulling out. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Why do you judge one another? We're all judged before God. And if you confess with your mouth, if you make a confession, if you agree with the nature and the person of Jesus... You have no need to fear when you stand before the judgment seat of God. Flip to Philippians chapter 2. I told you there's going to be a lot of scripture here. It's amazing to see how these all work together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Again, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every created being, all of mankind, every human being created in the image and likeness of God will confess one day that Jesus, in fact, is Lord, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is master and ruler of all. Some will have done it willingly in their life. Some will have repented and confessed and received the life of God. And to others, it will be to their damnation. Every knee shall bow. A couple more. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. We don't know the author of Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see the appeal there for us to continue to gather continue to gather in homes, continue to gather over meals, continue to gather on Sundays, and what do we do? We confess. We gather to hold fast to our confession, to remind one another of what is true and to align ourselves with what is true because you know how when you wander, when you don't gather with a community of believers who are reminding you of your confession, how you start to doubt, how your flesh starts to to. to, to how its cravings just get stronger and stronger and, and how you wonder what's true and what's right and where did the power go and, and why am I struggling so much? That's not to say that you don't struggle with doubt and worry and anxiety when you're gathering, but when we gather and we remind one another of the confession, when we hold the confession of who Jesus is close and near, you can make it through life in a much greater way than you can if you try to do life alone. So the author of Hebrews calls us to gather and confess. Flip over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See how healing comes as a result of confession? This could mean physical healing. Sometimes physical healing manifests itself in a community of faith when people are praying for one another. But ultimately, there's spiritual healing. The burden is lifted. The anxiety is cleared up. The doubt is is less prominent. You're in community with other believers confessing. And here it says, confess your sins. So you're agreeing to or aligning with the fact that, yeah, I screwed up. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud. Yes, I'm arrogant. Yes, I misused my money. Yes, I looked at that again. Yes, I said that hurtful thing again. Yes, I continue to neglect this area of my life. And you're in a community of people who are safe for you to confess that sin to. That's a piece of confession. It's not in a confessional booth where you have no relationship with the priest. I want you to know that. James is writing here to a church community of people who know each other, and he's saying, therefore, confess your sins one to another. Don't be afraid to get vulnerable. Don't be afraid to open up. It may take some time for you to build relationships where you feel safe enough to do that, but that's what the church is, a place for you to confess your sins one to another. And as you get this burden off your chest, as you bring it into the light, there is forgiveness and healing. Two more. 1 John Chapter 1, verse 9. John, the beloved friend of Jesus, says If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's freedom in confession because there's forgiveness at the cross. Don't be afraid to confess what's broken and wrong and messed up and backwards and twisted in you. And then in the same conversation, confess what is true and right about God and his son, Jesus Christ. And flip over to 1 John chapter 4, 15 through 21. Again, John writes, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe The love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Remember, you don't need to fear the day of judgment. You don't have to fear confessing and repenting, because you are loved by the Father. For this we have confidence for the day of judgment, because we are his Because as he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. What will happen to me? What will be taken from me? What pain will be inflicted upon me? But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, has not, whom, he, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. And so we're safe in the love of God. We can, we can confess what's true of God, what's wrong with us, and in that we're transformed because it's a safe place. And so here's the conclusion for this morning. There is joy in repentance and confession because it's the path from death to life. It's the path from being lost in our own pursuits to being found in the Father's presence. Church family, this month, and really in our Christian walk, we need to be people of continual repentance and confession. Because it's the path from death to life. As I close out this morning, one more passage. I know it's a lot. I debated doing this, but I want to go here. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to just read this as we close out, and then the band is going to play a song of repentance and confession. And you can take communion where you're at when you feel led and ready. Luke 15 is this beautiful picture of both repentance and confession. And I want to leave you with it as a reminder of the good love of the Father. That there is joy in repentance and confession because it's the path from death to life, from being lost in our own pursuits to being found in the Father's presence. And so follow along as I read or close your eyes and just listen and then the band will lead us into the song of repentance and confession. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I love this, a very familiar parable all about repentance and confession. And then he said another parable to teach them about repentance and confession. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. You see the repentance? You see the turn? I'm in this far country with nothing. I I need to go home and confess. I have sinned against you. Father, I have sinned against you, in, against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. He was dead and he is now alive. He was lost and he is now found. And they begin to celebrate. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is joy and freedom and repentance and confession because it is the path that brings us from death to life it is the the path that puts us into your presence lord i thank you for this reminder that as we repent and as we confess we have a father who's waiting for us with open arms lord may we be a people of continual repentance and confession for your glory for our good in the advancement of your gospel we pray